My thing with dating is that, like, I guess was, like, trained too well to associate heterosexual interaction with getting murdered. Welcome to You're Wrong About, the show where we tell you the real Princess Bride story. <laughs> That's good. Or in this episode, the real princess divorcee. Yeah, I'm excited for these people to finally get divorced. (laughs) I am Michael Hobbs. I'm a reporter for the Huffington Post. I'm Sarah Marshall. I'm working on a book about the satanic panic. And if you want to hear cute bonus episodes and support the show, you can support us on Patreon at patreon.com slash you're wrong about or buy a t-shirt or do none of that stuff and just continue listening quietly. (laughs) Or discontinue listening. Yeah. But let's talk about Diana for a second before you go. Yes. If you're headed out, (laughs) where are we? You're supposed to do this part. I was going to ask you, where are we? Catch us up. Oh, okay. Yeah, I can tell you where we are. Um, Princess Diana has decided that she wants out of the royal family. Yes. And so the way that she went about doing this was by publishing some kind of a book Mm -hmm. that she worked on with a sympathetic journalist named Andrew Morton. And so I'm very interested in talking about a world where when you want to get divorced, the first thing you do is keep it a secret and publish a book about it behind everybody's backs. I know. And lie about your participation in the book, too, as we will get to. Ah. But I want to pause here and do sort of our last meta comment for the series, because... We're going to do one more episode that is talking about the death of Princess Diana and all the conspiracy theories that crop up around her death. But this is the last episode of the series where Princess Diana is really a character. Mm -hmm. One of the fundamental challenges and tragedies of Diana's life is that really all of the information that we have about her comes from deeply mediocre and biased biographies. Mm -hmm. Like that's really the only credible information that we have about her is from anonymous sources, friends of hers who she ended up not speaking to because they were selling their secrets to the tabloids. Her therapist was on retainer to a tabloid for a thousand pounds a week to give away her secrets. Oh my God, that's so unethical. It's so bad. And what we're left with at the end of, you know, this 36-year-old woman's life is a bunch of biographies that really can't be trusted. I mean, one of the Mm. things that really stands out about the Andrew Morton biography, which she starts working with him on in the 1990s, is it's way too nice to her. She lies to him about having affairs, and he's like, okay. It's like, and then Rain Legs kind of slipped. Yes. (laughs) And then we have Tina Brown's biography that is too mean. At every turn, she is implying that Diana has the worst possible intentions. Mm. She keeps talking about how Diana, quote unquote, manipulates the press, which like that's her job is to manage her relationship with the press. Right. Framing it as manipulation is weird to me. It's like Kitty Kelly's biography of Oprah, where she basically seizes on like every potentially iffy thing Oprah has ever done in her entire life. And the book is just a felted matter made of that. Yes. And there and there's an accusation where Kitty Kelly is like, Oprah has tried to publicize and maximize the likable aspects of her character and to minimize the unlikable ones. And it's like, (laughs) yeah, like she's a public personality. Are you saying that Oprah (laughs) is alone in this behavior? Like what? Another thing that I really dislike about Tina Brown's book is that she keeps mentioning that Diana likes sex. (laughs) 
she brings it up like six different times. And in a way that's supposed to suggest that that's like bad. Yes. <laughs> oh, Tina. It's like you were mentioning the other day that Jeffrey Tubin keeps bringing up that Nicole Brown Simpson had plastic surgery yeah. in places where it's not relevant and he just keeps saying it. And like most adults enjoy having sex. That's only a fact that's relevant in, like, very specific contexts. But we have to all pretend we don't. And if a woman is murdered who we know to have enjoyed sexual encounters in her life, then, like, we can communicate our our feeling that it is less sad, potentially, for that reason. Right. And, and, then, and then masturbate during a conference call. <laughs> But I just think it's it's an interesting metaphor for the way that any kind of historiography works. Like, this is an extreme example of it because there is so little that we know. Mm-hmm. But this is what we all do. And this is what journalism is to some extent, right? It's it's basically us displaying a part of ourselves while going through this pantomime that we're telling some sort of factual story. Yeah. And I think the less journalism makes a claim to objectivity, the more ethical it can be because if you're, you know, because I think it's most dangerous when journalists are like, I just report. That's why I don't like the word reporter. I just report the facts. And oh it's my like, God. oh, are you a Geiger counter <laughs> and not a human person? <laughs> are you ready to dive into the outfits this week? I'm so, oh my gosh. As usual, I will link to these in the description. Mm-hmm. Okay. First photo. Here we go. Oh, this is nice. Right. Or so it would seem. (laughs) You know where this is going. (laughs) Yeah. So this is Charles and Diana, and each of them is holding, I imagine, one of their children. Yes. These are not random children. These are their their children. (laughs) Um, And they're wearing like country casual kind of Lily Pulitzer Mm -hmm. type clothes. And they're standing, interestingly, in a field of like wildflowers that... Mm -hmm are almost waist high and they're standing in front of some kind of an estate and they're smiling and Prince Charles actually looks like he's doing a smize. Yeah. And Diana is smiling, but I would say, in my own opinion, not smizing. Oh, so it's only a mouth smile. Do you see a smize there? No, I mean, it's so hard to read her because, you know, they're in this period in their marriage where they're basically not speaking. Yeah. It's very hard to not see that in the photos, but that also could just be us projecting what we know onto the photos. Yes. What do you think about the house behind them? It is very cute. It has lots of vines all over it. I'm a mm-hmm. fan of that. Yes. Ask me a question. Get a plant-based answer. <laughs> this is Highgrove mm-hmm. because British people name their houses like rich people name their boats. Oh, I named my house. It's called the Satellite of Love. So it's June of 1992. Mm-hmm. So far, 1992 has been a pretty bad year for the royal family. Prince Andrew's marriage with Fergie is breaking down. And so mm-hmm. she's essentially beginning the process of being ejected from the royal family. Mm-hmm. Princess Anne is divorcing her husband. And there's rumors that Princess Anne is having sex with Andrew Parker Bowles, who is mm-hmm. Camilla's husband. Like, mm-hmm. There's only like eight people in this upper echelon of British royal life, and they're all having sex with one another. So it's just like a, a Viner house back in the day. Exactly. 
And also, in March of 1992, Diana's father dies. Ah, How does she feel about that? She felt extremely sad. There's a really sad scene where she and her brother, the day that their father dies, they kick Rainlegs out of the house. Mm. They tell her, basically, pack your shit and go. Everything that belonged to my father is no longer yours. I just can't get over how this is such Maury Povich behavior. I know. She tries to pack up all of her clothes in trunks, but then they say that the trunks, because they have an S sort of engraved on them, they actually belong to their father. And so they make her put all of her stuff in garbage bags <gasps> and they throw it down wow. the stairs and just kick wow. her the fuck out. Oh my God. It's bad. Seriously. This is like, they're on the real world or I know. something. I know. But so I want you to imagine a scene, okay? Okay. Charles and Diana are in their cubular home, Highgrove. It is a Sunday morning. They get up. Mm-hmm. They're sort of puttering around as people do. And so Charles opens the Sunday Times newspaper at the kitchen table and starts reading. Mm-hmm. And what he sees is a headline that says, Diana driven to five suicide bids by uncaring Charles. Mm-hmm. What he's looking at is an excerpt of Andrew Morton's book. <gasps> oh, my God. God! Oh, Jesus! So, for months, she has been sneaking tapes of herself talking to Andrew Morton. And he has been interviewing her friends. He has been doing all of this sort of extra digging around to write the true story of the marriage. So, mm-hmm. his book contains three huge bombshells. So, mm-hmm. first, Diana had a severe eating disorder. Secondly, she has attempted suicide. Third, Prince Charles is sleeping with Camilla and has been for ages. But like everyone knows that one already, right? Like everyone basically knows or do they not know? I mean, the sort of the 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 daily mail reading public who can kind of read between the lines. Yes. But sort of normie Sunday Times readers. Not really. Okay. But so he starts reading this excerpt and she's there in the kitchen. So she sort of spots him reading this excerpt and is like oh fuck so at the time in press conferences and various other sort of public appearances she will deny that she had anything to do with the book she's like oh this was written behind my back unauthorized biography blah 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 behind the scenes she's actually working with the sunday times to confirm the stories because she wants the excerpt to run in the sunday times and not the daily mail Hmm. because the times has more credibility Mm -hmm. but as charles is reading these excerpts there's kind of sort of quotes from her that are not necessarily attributed to her but the only way to know them would be if you interviewed her Mm. so basically Charles is reading these excerpts and going, holy shit, she did the one unforgivable thing in the royal family. She went to the press. Hmm. What is amazing about this marriage and what is amazing about these people is this weekend that he's reading the paper, they have house guests. (laughs) So he's reading this livid. Their house Hmm. guests sort of come down. Are there pancakes? They have to make nice with these house guests. And Prince Charles, as he's reading the deepest, darkest secrets from his own fucking marriage, Mm -hmm. he has to pretend everything is okay. And then for hours, they're like, oh, let's go for a tour around the gardens and let's go for a (laughs) horseback ride. And so he has to go through the motions all day. And then finally, at Mm -hmm. the end of the day, he can come back and confront Diana. Yeah, well, I feel like this is a great example of the punishment fitting the crime. Yeah, (laughs) yes. And so this is the bomb that she throws into the marriage. This is Mm -hmm. what destroys the marriage, ultimately. Yeah. 
We were talking, I don't know if it was in this series or in a different episode about a terrible relationship, but like about that thing that happens where people start saying things to each other that are like so horrible Mm -hmm. that you know the relationship can't come back from this. Like you say the most hurtful thing you can think of, not even necessarily because it's true, but because you want to like maim the relationship in a way where you can't change your mind about it later. Totally. Like Oprah pouring water over bread. Oh, uh, yeah. I feel like that's what this is. This is a sentence from Andrew Morton's book. And Andrew Morton updated his book after Princess Diana's death. So there is kind of this epilogue where he talks about itself coming out into the world. It's very strange. Mm. He's talking about Charles coming back from showing around these house guests and kind of saying goodbye to them. And then he says, only then did he mount the stairs to his wife's room with the newspaper in his hand and say something that made Diana dash downstairs with a scarlet face and brimming eyes and flee back to London. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, as it would, this completely destroys any chance of them getting back together, any chance of them kind of forming like this business-like relationship where they just keep everything under wraps and because she knows she's betrayed him in a way that would be the most hurtful way that he personally could possibly be betrayed oh exactly and this is what he cut off her sister for doing remember right and so the next day is when they open negotiations to separate wow i mean it's worth talking about what a big deal this book was yeah can we Like, how did the public respond? Because, like, is this at all precedented? Oh, completely not. I mean, to have this much information public behind the scenes of a royal wedding while it's still going on, like, while the people are both still alive, Mm -hmm. is totally unprecedented. And, again, like, we're so used to these stories. Like, you know, so many of us grew up sort of knowing about the infidelity, knowing about Diana's eating disorder. I mean, so much of this was kind of public when you and I were coming of age. I grew up knowing of Princess Diana as the beautiful woman in the cocktail dress who, Mm. like, had gotten her groove back and escaped from this terrible, scary mansion that she'd been imprisoned in for 15 years. I mean, for people that really watched the royal family, they knew that this marriage was breaking down. But all of that is kind of rumors. Yeah. Right? I mean, you you read things in the tabloids and 30% of them are just completely made up. Mm -hmm. Although what's interesting is because Diana lies about her participation in the book and there's still this debate about whether or not she participated – It becomes one of Britain's most banned books of the 1990s. Really? So in Britain, you couldn't watch Child's Play or read Andrew Morton's (laughs) Diana book. And like, I I, I love both those things. This would have been so tough for me. But so the establishment reaction to this is kind of like a journalism ethics story. How dare you write this book that she didn't even want published she had nothing to do with. He actually gave her a copy of the text before the book was published, and she made edits to the book. Mm -hmm. The notable things that are not in the book are her own affairs. Yeah, It's pretty fucked up to write a biography of someone where they are allowed to edit it, but not to disclose that until after their death. It's not a biography. It's a ghostwritten memoir at that point. And even by the standards of a memoir, it's pretty fawning because if she was going to write her own memoir, she would have mentioned that she fucked this horse dude guy. And it was great. (laughs) So the day after this comes out, they go to Kensington Palace to meet with his parents to talk Mm. about the future of the marriage. Yeah, because, of course, that's the first people you would talk to. I know. Mummy. They're basically in like a quasi arranged marriage. And so what she's trying to do is to unarrange it. Yeah, they've both been trafficked. So basically both her and Charles 
want to separate, but the queen is saying that they should have some sort of six-month cooling off period. Like, uh, tensions are high, emotions are high, let's give it six months and then talk about it. Have another kid, see if things calm down. As these negotiations over the separation are going forward, Prince Philip starts writing her letters blaming her for destroying the marriage. Mm. He says, this is fucked up. Can you honestly look into your heart and say that Charles's relationship with Camilla has nothing to do with your behavior towards him in your marriage? Oh, my God. That is the opening line of one of the letters. They had a relationship before he and Diana met. Yes. Prince Philip. Like, can you not keep track of linear time? Because (laughs) I can. He also says that she didn't appreciate that he had cut ties with Camilla in the early years of their marriage. Mm. Like, you know, you never really thanked him for, like, not cheating on you in the first couple of years of your marriage. When your husband deigns to not cheat on you, you have to really, (laughs) like, reward him with a lot of little perks to encourage that behavior. (laughs) It's like he's a man. He's not a spaniel puppy. To her credit, Princess Diana basically writes back and is like, uh, fuck you, fuck this. He's the one that decided to cheat on me. I'm sorry, I'm not going to take blame for that. Nice. And so I guess eventually this exchange of letters becomes nicer. And he's like, you're right, you're right. I was kind of a dick huh. in my last letter. I'm sorry about that. And it wow. ends in this more conciliatory way. Although during this fight, like while it's really bad between Prince Philip and Diana, he threatens her and says, if you keep trying to leave this marriage, we are going to release tapes that we have of you having an affair. Diana's like, you fucking what? Mm-hmm. And he's like, oh, n- uh, n- never mind, never mind, never mind. I've said too much. She's already been contacted by the tabloids about this. He makes this little comment and then immediately takes it back. He never releases any tapes. Nothing, like, nothing comes of that at all. But it plants the seed of, like, these people are fucking spying on me. Yeah. And these tapes could come out at any time, basically. Yes. So there's a couple months where they're kind of negotiating the separation and trying to figure out what the future is going to look like behind the scenes. But in front of cameras, they still have to maintain this charade. Mm -hmm. So her and him are still going to these like royal ascot coloring the troops, like these ridiculous (laughs) horse-based public events. There's these just excruciating photos of them during this period, Uh clearly faking it. Just loathing radiating out of their pores. Also, one of the things that's very interesting, there's a 2006 study that shows diagnosis of bulimia in the UK showed 60,000 more cases diagnosed in 1994 than in 1991. I'll bet it did, because of the beautiful princess of your country, who's the only likable member of this whole stupid royal family, Yes, has the same problem you do, then like maybe you can accept it Yes, and try and get help. People see her as a person first, hmm. whereas everyone in the royal family sees her as her role first. So the royal family is like, we mustn't allow the commoners to realize that we're not the thing that we're pretending Right. They are and, and like, but everybody else already knows. And like the royals are the last people who are like pretending for their own benefit, basically. There's a, um, there's, there's a scene later where Charles gets the results of an opinion poll and his approval is 4%. <laughs> he talks about how he's really disappointed because his approval earlier in the 90s had been 15%. <laughs> like it's dropped to four. That's so dismal. Oh, baby. And you're like, Charles, 
15% is not good. And Diana's is like 70, 80% for like all yeah. of this period. Charles yeah. is trying to hold on to 15%. Like maybe rethink what you're doing. Yeah, right. Because his assumption is like, <laughs> it's not going to get better than 15% for him. Like if only he <laughs> like, could get back to 15%. I know. <laughs> I think this is also just a good illustration of the fact that if you're forced to have a job that you're bad at for your whole life, it yes. isn't good for you. This is the famous abuse thing. To the extent that I have sympathy for Charles. It's just like, no yeah. one should be forced to fucking live like this. Yeah. But so behind the scenes, negotiations are going kind of weirdly, you know, in a normal divorce, like a normal divorce negotiation. There's a couple things, you know, there's finances, there's custody, etc. In the British royal family, there's literally laws that only apply to the royal family. So huh. at one point, Diana is like, well, look, I still have the option. I can just take the kids and fuck off to Australia. Her brother lives in South Africa at this point. So she's like, I huh. can just move to South Africa and like take the kids with me. And they're like, huh. no, no, this is the heir to the throne. It's literally right. illegal for you to have custody. Wow. These are like kind of political negotiations. Like the prime minister is involved in the negotiations over this separation. So it's like they're not her children first. They're like the crown jewels or the, I can't think of another fancy British thing, the Bayou Tapestry. Yes. Yeah. (laughs) So finally, at the end of 1992, they come to a agreement. So there's going to be a formal separation. She is going to stay in Kensington Palace. Prince Charles is going to move to like, I don't know, some other fucking palace on the other side of the park. I don't know the names of these palaces. This is so weird. This is, These are just two trashy people who need to get a divorce. And like, I say that word out of love because like, this is just garden variety, trashy behavior, which is what people do when they've been miserable for years and they don't know how to be kind to each other and they throw each other down the stairs. Mm. If only they knew that. I know. But anyway, on December 9th, 1992, they announced the separation publicly. A magical day. The prime minister announces it in the House of Commons. It's like an act of statecraft. Yeah. And so they are now separated. Wow. Are you ready for our next photograph? Yes. This one is called Diana Jeans.jpg. <laughs> you know what? Oh, wow. I have never seen this look before. This is amazing. Isn't it great? Yes. She looks like a a mom in Kansas City Mm -hmm. who just got off of a shift at the craft store. (laughs) She looks like a human woman having a divorce. Totally. She is wearing a t-shirt with a moon and stars motif, which looks like a normal shirt that you could Mm -hmm. get at a... J.C. Penny, but I'm sure is designer or something. Probably. And then she has a quintessential pair of mom jeans. Yes. Belted, cinched. She's with one of her kids, I assume. And the shoes are great. Mm-hmm. The shoes are what make it clear that it's very deliberate. That it's an outfit. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Like, you're like, oh, it's a look. It's not just like her throwing on jeans. She does have some like Jodie Foster in the second half of the accused energy <laughs> right now. So the reason I chose this photo is because Diana is entering what I call her wine mom period. Ooh. She's living in Kensington Palace after he moves out. All three of the books that I read have like very long and very boring descriptions of how she redecorates and he redecorates, which I am not remotely going to recount. But the detail (laughs) that made me feel like this is her wine mom period is she starts putting up, you know, those like pillows and stuff that people have in every Airbnb you've ever stayed at Mm -hmm. with inspiring quotes on them. Live, laugh, love. Yes. Yes. This is an excerpt from Andrew Morton's book. 
On every chair were silk cushions embroidered with humorous motifs, such as good girls go to heaven, bad girls go everywhere. I love it. You have to kiss a lot of frogs before you find a prince. And this is the best one. I feel sorry for people who don't drink because when they wake up in the morning, that is the best they are going to feel all day. That's so lovely. But you know what I love about this is that Princess Diana can finally be her authentic self and bear her soul. And her authentic self is just like a mom from Duluth, Minnesota. Yes. Oh, you <laughs> set this lady loose in a target. She also, this is fucking savage. She decorates the bathroom with political cartoons making fun of Prince Charles. That's so cute. <laughs> Good for her. She's having fun. You know, this is great. She also starts like tying up loose ends. She makes up with her grandmother. Mm. She also, importantly, she makes up with Rainlegs. Wow. She asks Rainlegs around, and Rainlegs apparently is so scared of meeting with Diana alone that she brings her new fiance. Good idea, Rain. I know. Like, I don't know how this is going to go. Is she just going to, like, pistol whip me? Like, what what does she have in store? (laughs) But apparently, Diana comes to this realization that, like, Rain loved... Her father, too. Yeah. So she is having a feelings jubilee. Like, this happens to people where you just, like, some major structural thing changes and then chaos reigns. And then suddenly, Mm. like, all these other immovable things become movable somehow. This is also the time a month after they announced the separation, Charles and Camilla's quote-unquote sex tape comes out. Oh, the tampon The tampon tape. tape. Mm. You know, in the public eye, this is like, LOL, he's talking about tampons, whatever. Charles likes sex. But do you remember that I mentioned, you know, the transcript of the tape is really long, and most of it is sexual logistics. Mm -hmm. Oh, we can stay at David's country house. Yeah. Diana reads the rest of the transcript, and she sees names of people that she knows. Mm -hmm. They are having sex in the country homes of her and Charles's mutual friends and her friends. Hmm. And so to her, the revelation is not the sex talk, whatever. It's that like, oh, all of our friends have been aiding Mm. and abetting Charles's affair with Camilla. And everyone's been gaslighting me this entire time. Exactly. Yeah. So I think some of the sort of reconnecting with Rain and reconnecting with her grandmother is her trying to exit Charles's world. Just like, yeah, fuck these people. Well, and you can see how she married into the royal family, maybe partly with a like a 20 year olds or a 19 year old sense of like, fuck my family. I'm joining a new family. And then having joined that new family is like, huh, that didn't really work either. Yeah. (laughs) There's a really interesting passage in Andrew Morton's book where he talks about her daily routine and just sort of like how solitary her life is. He says, it was a quiet, almost monastic life. The princess's daily routine rarely varied. Her day started promptly at 7 a.m. After a light breakfast of pink grapefruit, homemade muesli, or granary toast... She departed for her daily workout at the exclusive Chelsea Harbor Club. Hmm. Around 9 a.m., her flamboyant hairdresser, Sam McKnight, put in an appearance. I'm like, what do you mean by the word flamboyant there, Andrew? Right. While he attended to her hair, the princess was busy on the bedroom phone. Her friends knew that the early morning was a good time to catch her. At that time of day, she was usually chatty and lighthearted. So this is like her going through her text messages and like chatting with people. Yes. And then, you know, some days she'll have friends over for lunch or she'll go have lunch with whatever Elton John or whoever she wants to. But most days she just like has 
lunch by herself in the house. Mm -hmm. She doesn't have a lot of social engagements. This is what her old security guard says. People have this image of Kensington Palace, that there are flunkies and court jesters all over the place, and it's buzzing all the time. But at 5.30, the butler, the cleaner, and the dresser go home. It's the most lonely place in the world. Hmm. So most nights, she's just, like, hanging out, watching TV. Does she she have her old job still? Like, is she still going to ribbon cuttings and stuff well she's still doing that stuff but it's the schedule is much reduced because she's not sort of like an official member of the royal family anymore they've like quietly demoted her yeah basically under the terms of the separation she gets the kids every other weekend and on half of the school holidays wow it's like she's tim allen in the santa claus and so for those weekends she'll go pick them up she'll hang out with them they'll you know go to the zoo or go to a museum or like do you know normal parent stuff But most of the time, she's by herself. Hmm. There's a thing on Christmas Day of 1993 where the kids are at Sandringham, this country estate, whatever, that the royal family has. Mm -hmm. And so she's invited to go up there Christmas Eve, but then she has to leave early before anybody gets up on Christmas Day. Hmm. And she says she cries the whole way on the way back to London Mm -hmm. that year. It's the first Christmas without the kids. Mm -hmm. In the midst of this loneliness... She falls in love with another guy. Mm-hmm. Have you have you heard of this? Of, of falling in love with a guy? Yeah. <laughs> this is the thing. I'm avoiding saying his name because his name is Oliver and his last name is H-O-A-R-E. Uh-huh. Do you want to try to pronounce that? Well, because it's a British name, I'm sure it's pronounced Harrow or something. Looking at the word, I want to pronounce it whore. Well, whore is a kind of frost. I mean... I just don't want to say the word because it's a mean word. Okay. Do you want to say Harrow? Yeah, let's say Harrow. So uh-huh. Oliver Harrow, he's friends with her. He's friends with Charles. He somehow gets dispatched by the royal family during the separation negotiations as like a go-between. Hmm. They're not really speaking. So Charles will sort of deputize Oliver to, you know, oh, tell her that I, this is what I'm thinking about. And then she comes back with a different message. Mm-hmm. And so over time, her and Oliver end up getting romantically involved with each other. Mm-hmm. All of Diana's relationships have this just like fundamentally doomed quality. Mm-hmm. The issue with Oliver is that he is married with two kids and his wife is extremely wealthy. He's like an art gallery owner guy. And basically his mm. art gallery is not remotely sustainable. And so without his wife's support, it would close up. Yeah, because it's an art gallery. I mean, it's the thing. Like people talk about like he's not going to leave his wife. Everything about him is wrapped up in his wife's fortune. But as people do, you know, Diana convinces herself that it's going to work out, whatever. They get like what is called a love nest, but it's just an apartment in Pimlico that they start having sex in this random apartment a couple times a week. Well, they're all apartments. I mean, there's no love nests that are like actual nests. I, yeah, I, I don't know why we need this term. Anyway, it's it, it's an apartment. They start having sex in this apartment. Somehow his wife finds out about this. Like, are you having sex with the Princess of Wales? And he's like, uh, yes, a little bit. And his <laughs> wife is like, I will take you back. I will forgive this. I will not fuck over your art gallery if you stop seeing her. Not as friends, not as business associates, just cut her completely off. And he's like, you know what? Fine. I'm going to rejoin this marriage. I'm going to try to fix my marriage. I'm not going to see Princess Diana anymore. So he mm. tells Princess Diana, look, sorry, we're busted. This has to end now. And then they start getting weird phone calls at night. Some accounts say it's 20 times a day. Other accounts say it's 20 times a week. Either way, they're getting just like a shitload of weird calls. And his wife will pick up the phone 
and she'll just hear breathing on the other end or just a click. Uh-huh. So she calls Scotland Yard and asks them, hey, we're getting these like a shitload of these weird nuisance calls. Can you trace them? And mm. after a couple weeks, Scotland Yard gives her a report and most of the calls can be traced back to Kensington Palace. <laughs> and she's like, what the fuck? That's so embarrassing. It's really embarrassing. Yeah, Diana. Apparently she would put on a wig and go call from payphones. My favorite thing that I've learned from doing this series is that Princess Diana was kind of a hot mess express. Dude, yeah. Like, I really relate to her, and I did I not think I would do that. Well, she just loves relationships that are never going to go anywhere. Like, this was never going to work out. Love a good doomed relationship. I know. Love it. <laughs> it's also part of a pattern of her of getting super infatuated with guys. Mm-hmm. Sort of thinking that this one guy is going to solve all of her problems. I mean, this is something... That her friends talk about that she'll say like, oh, if only I can get him to leave his wife, then like, then we'll be able to be together. And it's like, really? And then she's like, he's never going to leave her. And her friend's like, of course he's not. (laughs) She's like, you're right. You're right. I know you're right. So somehow this gets to the papers. One tabloid prints a story saying like, Diana's making weird nuisance phone calls to this guy. Like, the story breaks. Yeah, the headline is how embarrassing. (laughs) The headline is, dies cranky calls to married tycoon. Uh, at least in America, we make puns. I know, it's not even that good of a tabloid headline. No. But then, this is seen as, like, Diana's manipulation with the press. And this is actually, like, low-key kind of manipulative. She goes to another journalist... Because she's very good at building relationships with journalists. Like, she'll have journalists over for, like, off-the-record lunches pretty frequently. Mm -hmm. She finds out that the story's coming out, like, 48 hours before it happens. And so Mm -hmm. she goes to another tabloid, and she feeds them the story that I'm being hounded by the press. Mm. Look, you know, the press will stop at nothing. Like, look how craven these people are. They're saying I'm making nuisance phone calls. Nice. Her line that she gives this other journalist is she says, I don't even know how to use a parking meter, let alone a phone box. Oh, so she's falling back on the, like, I'm a big thicko defense. I know. The idea that she wouldn't know how to use a payphone, like, payphones are not difficult to use. Right. And she would have probably used them as a child. Like, she's not her husband. She hasn't been alienated from the real world since birth. Yes. She also she provides the journalist with her day book, like her diary and she's like, well look, I couldn't have been dialing him from Kensington Palace because I was at like whatever, whatever event that night. And the diary is fake. <laughs> like it's her, it's her handwriting. Uh-huh. But she's just like written down stuff that didn't happen. But the journalist doesn't really do due diligence. I also appreciate the fact that she's like a hot mess in her love life and is actually very good at her job. She's like Holly Hunter in Broadcast News. Yes. I also find it interesting (laughs) that like I'm sure that Tina Brown or any number of other people would call this manipulation. And I'm like, is it? It feels like it's just she's been in the public eye for her entire adult life. She's been slammed by this her whole adult life. Mm -hmm. You know, she's like a surfer learning to ride the waves, right? And it's interesting that we see someone, especially women, Mm -hmm. you know, doing anything but getting pummeled by the surf over and over again as like intrinsically wicked. And also keep in mind, how do we feel about women who refuse to manipulate the media? 
right? How do we feel about women who are bad with the media? She shouldn't have worn that. She shouldn't have yeah. invited the attention that she got. Yeah, we blame women for what media does to them the way we blame people for sexual assault. Yes. I've never heard a male celebrity called manipulative for the way that they use the press. No. Humans should not lie. Lying is immoral. Lying is bad. But also, a celebrity lying to the media... Is this something we actually hate as a society? I think she has a right to conceal that, honestly. She's concealing something about herself that's fucking embarrassing. Yes. And that has nothing to do with, like, public welfare or anything yeah. like that. It's just, like, she behaved embarrassingly about mm -hmm. a breakup, like, during a divorce. Yeah. Yeah. Another interesting aspect of this is that this actually is what stops the nuisance calls because she asks Oliver to go to the tabloids and say, tell them I was never calling you. Tell them this whole thing is made up. There was never any phone calls. It was like a kid at school doing prank calls to you. And he refuses. Wow. So she sees this as a betrayal. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, snap of the fingers, she's over her infatuation with him. Yeah. I mean, the best way to like sour romantic feelings is by betraying someone yeah. potentially so that's her wine mom phase are you ready for the next photo i think so yeah sending you another one ah, i know this is so great i love I it know. i know i just know that she has a comically large bottle of evian just right out of frame <laughs> right okay this is great this is diana in her like step up box phase i assume yes. she's wearing a lovely like impressionistic leotard mm -hmm. with like blotches of pink and yellow and then those little bike shorts that everyone wore in the 90s mm -hmm. and then cute little like reeboks and socks like everyone also wore in the 90s and she's on some kind of an exercise machine, like a weight thing at the gym, and she's giving great face. She's totally being mm -hmm. like Jim Rat Barbie. I love it. This is a symbol of how her relationship with the press is souring. Really? Go on. This comes at a time when, first of all, in 1993, the Squidgy Gate tapes come out. Mm. So those are in the paper. And this is fucked up. The sun sets up a hotline where you can listen to the tape for 36 pence a minute. What? It's also a time when the horse dude publishes his memoir about mm. his affair with Diana. Okay. Oh, oh, so people didn't know that about her. They thought that she had been just like virtuously yes, wrong, being cheated on. They think she's Emma Thompson in Love Actually. Mm -hmm. But really, she's a woman who was not depicted in that movie because none of the women in it had enough agency to cheat on anybody. I mean, it, it, it's such a time capsule because right now we are so used to a world where everybody has a telephone with them at all times. And celebrities know mm -hmm. that anything they do will be photographed by some random person. Mm -hmm. But this is 1994. And there's a guy that goes to her gym who rigs a silent camera with no like click, click shutter thing in the ceiling. Oh, my God. These aren't posed? No. That's amazing. I assume these were posed no. because she looks really good. She looks amazing. Wow. But she's absolutely livid about this. Of course she is because she's being surveilled. Yes. These are published in a nine-page spread in, I believe, the Daily Mail. That's horrible. That's horrible. Do you want to guess the headline? Uh, uh. Now here's something to masturbate to. <laughs> <laughs> 
Yours is better. No, they get published under the name Die Spy Sensation. No. So they're like, here's these photos that we unethically obtained. We're yeah. going to put that in the headline. Mm-hmm. Obviously, it's fair game because she's just like a panda at the zoo. Yeah. Ugh. So she actually sues the guy that took yeah, the photos. And there's like a whole out of court settlement, something, something. It's not clear what exactly happened. But this is the first time that she's really getting to the point where she's like, fuck the press. This is way too much to handle. Yeah. There's also, this is a fucked up scene. This is a week after her grandmother dies, the grandmother that she had only recently reconciled with. Mm -hmm. She's taking the kids to Jurassic Park, and there's a bunch of paparazzi there. And what's been happening over the last couple of months is the paparazzi are getting more aggressive. Mm. This is from Tina Brown's book. She's interviewing a friend of Diana's, and he says, I had lunch with her once at San Lorenzo, and I said, how do you put up with it? This is unbearable. They used to say awful things to get a reaction. Diana, you are a cunt. Horrible (gasps) things. It would make her cry. (sighs) Wow, that's intense. This is another excerpt. If the princess kept her head down coming out, they'd yell bitch to make her cry and get a newsier shot. When she covered her head getting into a taxi, a Spanish photographer shouted, why don't you put your head up and start acting like a fucking princess? (laughs) This becomes her relationship with the paparazzi. She sometimes does blow up at them. And the problem is that once you blow up at them once, then they want to get the shot of Diana blowing up at the paparazzi. Yeah. That's worth more than a just sort of generic photo of her walking down the street. So it's like Beanie Babies. Yes. This is what happens at the Jurassic Park premiere when she's In an emotional, pretty vulnerable state, they're yelling horrible things at her, and she yells back at them, why don't you rape somebody else? Wow. Which is pretty fucking intense. Wow. Yeah. Wow. One of the paparazzi says, her eyes were fixed on us, and then she let out a scream like a wild animal. You make my life hell. Yeah. But then what drives me fucking crazy is that then, of course, this becomes like a big story, like, die, lashes out at paparazzi at Jurassic Park, whatever. And the Mm -hmm. Daily Mirror publishes a political cartoon of Princess Diana as a dinosaur. Ah. She's the T-Rex. Yeah. And she's bearing down on the photographers. And the word bubble for one of the photographers is, wow, mom, you're better than the movie. Which isn't even good. If you, like, don't assume that it's meant to be cruel, which obviously it is, it's, like, kind of high praise, because it's Mm -hmm. like, yeah, she's a a mother T-Rex protecting her young from a bunch of idiots. Yeah. In the tabloid worldview, there is no scenario in which a paparazzi could go too far. It's this completely amoral view of humanity where celebrities have no right to complain about any kind of press attention because they're celebrities and they want the attention. Right. This is a central thing in tabloid ideology. They're like, oh, if she doesn't want to be photographed, she shouldn't be the princess. Similar to the T-Rex. You wake up, you don't know what sanctuary it is. You see (laughs) what, you know, is from a T-Rex's perspective, Mm -hmm. the equivalent of like a Kong toy with some kibble in it. Mm -hmm. And you try and eat the kibble. Yes. It's, It's accidentally very apropos. So... This is really, I mean, this is emblematic of the way that, you know, for the first time, she is having a really antagonistic relationship with the press. I mean, in general, the press has been pretty good to her. Yeah. The royal family also starts undermining her philanthropy and her sort of official trips. Hmm. That oftentimes, like, there's a thing where an IRA bomb goes off and it kills two young boys. And, you know, within hours, 
Diana calls the parents to talk to them and to console them. And she asks, like, can I go up and visit them? Mm -hmm. And the royal family forbids her to do it. They're like, no, Prince uh, Hmm. Prince Philip's going. He'll do great. He's got a very nice bedside manner and he makes people feel better. So it's just like there's a million little events like this small undermining things. And they're removing her from the jobs that give her life meaning, which are her public roles and motherhood. She also, she's at this time doing various sort of, you know, awareness raising things on AIDS and on eating disorders and depression and all kinds of other stuff. She actually gives a very long speech against uh, the use of tranquilizers for women. Mm. She conflates tranquilizers with antidepressants in a way that I don't love. Mm-hmm. Like we're sort of giving women antidepressants to make them forget about what's going on in their lives. But it's mostly focused on tranquilizers. And people start accusing her of like being a bad feminist. And one of these right-wing columnists accuses her of glamorizing eating disorders by talking about her own eating disorder. Okay, whatever. Yeah, I mean – The thing is, I feel weird about it because Tina Brown talks about how Princess Diana is essentially the first sort of global philanthro celebrity. Like now we have, you know, Bono and Angelina Jolie and George Clooney, Brad Pitt. This is now a big part of celebrity is going around and doing these philanthropic events and having like issues that you care about, whatever. Yeah. As a guy who worked in development and like saw issues get poisoned by celebrities getting involved in them. I sort of agree with the overall critique that, like, Bono is full of shit and he should pay his fucking taxes. And a lot of the people that are accusing her of why is this woman with no actual expertise getting involved in these issues? Like, on some level, I actually agree with those critiques. On the other hand, it does seem like she's picking issues that actually require more awareness. Something like AIDS that really does need to be destigmatized. Like, she's being pretty smart in the things that she's dealing with. And she's not, Mm -hmm. like Prince Charles, getting into all of this, like, overpopulation, like, eco-fascism adjacent stuff. Like, she's better at choosing issues where a celebrity can actually sort of help. Right. So I just feel weird about it. Yeah. But so, in response to all of this, on December 3rd of 1993, she announces that she is resigning from public life. Wow. Do you remember this? This is like one of my first Princess Diana memories. No. I remember there being headlines about like Princess Diana resigns. And as a kid, I was like, what does that mean? You can't resign for being a celebrity because, I mean, being a celebrity, it's like currency. It's like if everybody else believes it, then it's true. So you can't just say like, I'm no longer going to be a celebrity anymore. Right. I I didn't really understand as a child, what actually she meant by this. And now, as an adult, I'm not sure I understand this either. Well, she's resigning from a public role like Nixon, right? But she's not really because she continues to do charity stuff and she continues to do like official trips to Bosnia and stuff. Huh. Is, he just try- is she trying to get the press off of her back, do you think? I mean, I think it's partly just a strategy publicly to try to get them off of her back. The only substantive thing that I could find that she does is she pairs back her charity work. So she used to be working with a hundred-ish charities and she pairs that back to just five. And she wants to do more behind the scenes things with the charities, less of this shaking hands, ribbon cutting type charity work. She wants to do more behind the scenes stuff, trying to make them more effective. But other than that, I can't find a lot else that this really means. Mm -hmm. There's a nice moment in the Andrew Morton book with a celebrity cameo. It says, 
A few months later, at a reception at the Serpentine Gallery, of which she was a patron, as she chatted to the movie star Jeremy Irons, he told her, I've taken a year off acting. Mm. Diana smiled and replied, so have I. Aw, that's ah. nice. But so, the souring relationship with the press leads us to the divorce. Mm -hmm. So, I'm going to send you one more look which you have undoubtedly seen 400 times. Mm. So there are three things that lead to the divorce of Prince Charles and Diana. And this dress is kind of one of them. I do know this dress. And I know this picture too. This is a great shot because you can just see her quads just a little bit mm. underneath the hemline and she's yeah. fucking ripped dude she's super ripped i know so okay so this is like a classic lbd lower bust little black dress oh okay and she's wearing a necklace that once again looks like the heart of the ocean mm-hmm. it's a great shot because she's striding forward dynamically and smizing yes. at whatever is in front of her mm-hmm. yeah it's just a wonderful dress it's mm-hmm. very It's not super skimpy, but like it's got, what do you call sleeves that aren't up on the shoulders? They're on the upper arms. Sloves. Yes. And she just looks in command of herself. It's a really great photo. This is known as either the revenge dress or the fuck you dress. How is it a revenge dress? I will tell you. Okay. So she is wearing this on... June 29th, 1994, which is the evening that a documentary about Prince Charles airs on the BBC. So over the last couple months, as her relationship with the press is getting worse, the royal family's relationship with the press is getting better, basically because they have better management. For 18 months, Prince Charles has been working with the BBC and a biographer to basically get out like a counter narrative, right? Because Diana's biography has come out. So he's Mm. trying to put out like the Charles side of the story. Oh boy. So they air a documentary, which I have seen and is terrible, called Uh Charles, the Private Man, the Public Role. Please tell me all about this documentary. It's so boring. Oh my God. It's half like interviews with him. And then the other half is, you know, this journal is kind of like going with him on, you know, hunting excursions. And there's this long scene where he's describing hunting and they're like, how can you tell that there's a deer in the bush? And he's like, you have to look for them. Uh, I don't know. It's just so boring. You know, he's trying, he's talking about like his interests, like architecture and gardening, and he's really into like homeopathy and stuff. Mm. It's just the like not very insightful thoughts of like a rich guy who thinks he's really insightful. Yeah, I mean, this is all very Marie Antoinette down to the fact that Louis XVI was just a boring guy who really wasn't particularly interested in the thing that was alleged to be his yes. job. Honestly, if he was like your dad, you would really like him, right? Like he's not an evil person. Right. Unless he cheated on your mom a bunch and then I mean, alienated unless, her you know. horrifically and, and you know, et cetera. So <laughs> really, I mean, the only thing that comes out of this interview is he admits finally, publicly, that he was having an affair with Camilla during the marriage. Ah. So the reason why this is called the revenge dress 
is that she's wearing this dress to some opening something something at the Serpentine Gallery. She originally had canceled, like she got the invitation. She's like, eh, I'm busy that night. I can't make it. Then when she finds out that the documentary is airing that night, she's like, oh, uh, something's opened up in my schedule. I think I will be coming. And so she deliberately chooses this dress to knock Charles off the front pages the next day. Yes, that's so Good. This is like Veep. I know. And it fucking works. So he has this big documentary. He's like, finally coming out. Like, they're going to humanize me on the BBC. And it's going to be this big deal. I'm going to get all this great coverage. And he opens up the papers the next morning. Do you do you want to guess the fucking headline that runs alongside this photo of Diana wearing the dress? Um, it's so bad, Sarah. You can't, you cannot come up with something as bad as this. Uh, can you give me a hint <laughs> of like what the theme is? Muhammad Ali. That's not going to help, but Muhammad oh, Ali. Oh, float like a butter dye, sting like a bee. That's my guess. <laughs> is it? <laughs> it's probably not bad. <laughs> The headline they use is they, they show the photo that I just showed you and it says uh-huh. the thriller he left to woo Camilla. Oh, that's <laughs> come on. That's pretty good. <laughs> <laughs> They're all just so bad. I don't know why we have to talk like this because life is really hard and we all need to gang up on famous people to get through it. So it's basically her being like, well, you know, he's talking about Camilla and he's in this sort of not making him look so great interview. And like, I am thriving. Yeah. I am showing up at the Serpentine Gallery. I'm looking amazing. It's great because this is what the what you do to show your ex you're doing great. But your ex is like all of Britain. Yes, exactly. <laughs> so that's basically the first thing that leads to their divorce basically him admitting that he's been seeing camilla this whole time and they're and they're slowly airing the secrets that in a way are like they're letting the people in on stuff that like they can't unknow and you can't save a marriage that is like there's this much information about how bad it was you know her suicide attempts him cheating on her even if they did get back together they're starting to form this thing of like do we want these people to get back together like this this whole thing just seems like really toxic and gross yeah the second thing that happens that leads to the divorce is on november 20th 1995 uh-huh. the bbc airs the infamous panorama interview with diana uh-huh. oh i am sure you've seen clips of this i don't know she's having she has the eye makeup And she's like answering questions with the journalist who also interviewed Michael Jackson in the tree. This is an hour long interview on the BBC with Princess Diana. And it's her first ever solo interview. Really? It's fascinating. That's amazing. So she really has been like a hostage this whole time in a lot of ways. Well, there's something so interesting about the royal family because they're so tetchy about giving the press any access. So, so much of what you hear about them is sort of, you know, anonymous quotes from their friends or stories that are written about them. It's very rare to see them actually speak. I think before I started working on this series, I don't think I had ever heard Prince Charles's speaking voice. Huh. Yeah. No, I don't think I have. They don't really give press conferences the way that politicians do. Right. So it's it's really amazing. I mean, a lot of people in Britain talk about this as the first time they've heard her voice. Really? Yeah. That's amazing. That's really amazing. Because she's been in the public eye now for like 15 years, right? Yeah. So the reason why she does the interview is basically all of the her relationship souring with the press stuff we just talked about. 
there's a stereotype forming that, you know, she's a T-Rex and she's doing these like janky royal visits and she's calling this guy at weird hours and like it seems like she's a little bit unhinged and she basically sees her own public image getting away from her and she sees for the first time Prince Charles kind of doing okay press-wise. She wants to strike back because she knows that anything divorce, anything that happens with this relationship is going to be primarily a PR battle. Well, there's nothing worse than your ex doing okay. Right? Yeah. So she starts fishing around for journalists. She knows a journalist named Martin Bashir through, I think it's like a friend of a friend or a cousin or something. She sort of vaguely knows him. He spends months working on her to get a solo interview with her. I mean, millions of journalists have tried this, Mm -hmm. but it doesn't work until basically she decides to do it. And he shows her checks that prove that her staff are in the employment of News of the World. Yeah, and the Murdoch ones play dirty, right? Well, this is this is worse. We find out later that Martin Bashir faked the checks. What? They don't what? exist. Oh yes. my god. Well, that's really dirty. So she had let one of her staff members go, and Martin Bashir took this person's name, put their name on a check, and had the graphic design department at the BBC make fake checks. The BBC did that? Yeah. I mean, the BBC did a whole inquest and they say they didn't know about it and it didn't talk uh-huh. her into the interview, blah, blah, blah. This uh-huh. was like a Martin Bashir project. Yeah. He's playing off of her paranoia. Yeah. Come with me if you want to live. It's so fucking unethical. Yeah, it really is. And also, this is bananas. Everybody filmed it completely secretly. So her own staff, like her head of press, did not know she was doing this. Oh, wow. Oh, boy. That's intense. This is really intense. We don't, we need like a big soapy TV version of this. Like, I know. Not good TV. Soapy TV. It's also wild. The BBC kept it secret from their own board of directors as well. That's amazing. So everyone's being real shady yeah. about this whole thing. The one time in his book that he sort of breaks character, Andrew Morton talks about this and he's like, you know, it's pretty fucked up that you need this much subterfuge to record an interview with, like, someone who's a public figure and, like, our tax dollars are going to her salary. And the idea – what everybody's afraid of is that the the royal family is going to find out about this in advance and going to kill it. Hmm. It's like, uh, you shouldn't have a royal family that, like, makes it illegal to have basic transparency about their operations. Like, it's actually fucked up that the BBC couldn't tell their boards of directors about this because the boards of directors – new members of the royal family like they're all connected they're from the same social class right so they would have found an excuse to kill this and it's like that's actually a huge indictment of the fact a that we have a royal family and b that the bbc that is supposed to be this like impartial state broadcaster is so fucking intertwined with the royal family that you can't even do an interview with a member of the royal family that's bad that's not that's not a good thing to have going on so i am sending you a clip we're gonna watch a clip of this oh boy i'm nervous i'm nervous for her. I know. Um, three, two, one, go. According to press reports, it was suggested that it was around this time things became so difficult that you actually tried to injure yourself. Mm. Is that true? Mm. When no one listens to you or you feel no one's listening to you, all sorts of things start to happen. For instance, you have so much pain inside yourself 
that you try and hurt yourself on the outside because you want help, but it's the wrong help you're asking for. People see it as crying wolf or attention-seeking, and they think because you're in the media all the time, you've got enough attention, inverted commas. But I was actually crying out because I wanted to get better in order to go forward and continue my duty and my role as wife, mother, Princess of Wales. So, I, uh, yes, I did inflict upon myself I didn't like myself. I was ashamed that I couldn't cope with the pressures. What did you actually do? Well, I just hurt my arms and my legs. And I work in environments now where I see women doing similar things, and I'm able to understand completely where they're coming from. What was your husband's reaction to this when you began to injure yourself in this way? <clears throat> well, I didn't actually always do it in front of him. Um, but obviously anyone who loves someone would be very concerned about it. Did he understand what was behind the physical act of hurting yourself, do you think? No, but then not many people would have taken the time to see that. Wow. What do you think? Ah, someone's chopping some onions in here. I know. <laughs> um, I mean, so, so she's describing her self-harm, basically, mm -hmm. in this clip, and... So the first thing that I was struck by is that she's like extremely self-aware about everything. It feels like she has come to understand her experience and is able to talk about it, if not without feeling shame, then without projecting a feeling of shame yeah. anyway, which to me is, is very emotional. Mm -hmm. Like, I think that's why I'm having this little cry response to it, because I feel like that's like, that's very meaningful to me to see someone who has like, inflicted all of this pain on themselves and kind of figured out what that's about and now mm -hmm. has a response of wanting to destigmatize it for other people and yeah. talk to them about it and be like I'm the princess of Wales and well like formerly <laughs> and I know what that's like which I guess I really appreciate that she's doing yeah. that with this weird random power that has been given to her do you know why I picked this clip because you wanted to make me cry <laughs> and she sounds like you <laughs> she's talking uh, about the power of the media she's talking about uh, when people see you as this public figure they think you have all this power uh, but underneath it you're actually hurting like that's something you've said on the show like 20 times oh thank you mike thank you for comparing me to princess diana well it was also that in your jeans oh yeah no i do look great in those mom jeans but um <laughs> yeah well and i yes and i i feel like she is undertaking a project that's dear to my heart partly because you know it's important to me too which is just like allowing people to talk about emotions and emotional trauma in a way that like allows us to heal and progress forward rather than like dynamically ignoring things like the royal family yeah. does and i'm also struck by the fact by two things that she says in this one is that she feels that it was upsetting to prince charles to see her injuring herself because it would be upsetting to anyone to see someone they loved hurting mm -hmm. themselves. So that's implying that she does think that he at least loved her at yeah. that time. She could have twisted the knife there, right? I mean, she yeah. could have said like, oh, he never cared about me. But she says like, nope, he loved me and it was really hard for him. Yeah, she has a very, like, there's not a lot of, there's not a lot of rancor present in, at least in this clip, mm -hmm. which is interesting as she's talking about this former marriage. Um, and then also what I find interesting is her saying that, you know, no Prince Charles didn't understand 
what was going on or why she was doing what she was doing. But then like not many people would have been Mm -hmm. able to, or would have bothered. And that makes me sad yeah. because that's like a very low expectation of other people. You know, I guess this idea of like, if you happen to end up somehow in a relationship with someone who's able to try and successfully figure out like some of what you're going through emotionally, even if you're able to like, describe it very clearly for them Mm -hmm. that's the rare exception to the rule she's aware of the system that she's inhabiting she's aware of the fact that people could have gotten to know her and chose not to Mm -hmm. and she talks about how the family basically settled on this explanation for their marital problems that her bulimia caused everything wow you know her bulimia was the reason why the marriage broke down. It was the reason for her suicide attempts. It was the reason why Charles eventually started sleeping with Camilla. And you know what she says over and over again in this interview and in the Morton book is that the bulimia was a symptom of a yes. marriage that wasn't working. And even if you disagree about the timing and if you like inexplicably don't trust that and believe it was a pre-existing condition, then you're still citing her bulimia as the single greatest stressor on the marriage, which like, come on. I know. <laughs> <laughs> I think the single greatest stressor on the marriage was three words, the in-laws. Oh, yeah. So there's other things in the interview. The interviews are an hour long. She also admits to having the affair with the horse dude. Mm. She lies about participating in the Morton book, which is interesting. Mm-hmm. There's also one of the huge pieces of news that comes out of this interview is she implies that Prince Charles isn't suitable to be king. Hmm. She doesn't like say it, say it. She says, I think the top job would bring enormous limitations to him. And I don't know whether he could adapt to that. Wow. Nice. You know, by the standards of the royal family, like nothing like this has ever been said before, right? Like the queen basically saying that like the king might not be able to handle being king. This is a Mm -hmm. huge deal. It's the sickest imaginable burn. Exactly. There's this fascinating thing, too. So this interview is the largest audience for a TV documentary ever. Wow. Like the Colin Firth Pride and Prejudice. The public loves it. I mean, you can't watch that clip and not feel anything. Mm. There's a poll afterwards that only 25% of the population says that she should play a less active role in public life. Wow. So they really like her. But what is fascinating to me is that the royal family and sort of this upper echelon of British society basically thinks that she's like posting cringe. They hate it. <laughs> so, in what way? What do they hate about it? Basically, she's talking about serious stuff. That, you know, the future queen of the country should not be talking about. Mm. Apparently, Camilla says that Diana had finally proven that she was loopy, half-witted, and probably ought to be locked up. Oh, wow. And her own mother is so embarrassed by this interview that she doesn't answer the phone for a couple days because she knows her daughter's going to be calling. Yikes, that sucks. It's bad. Yeah. The the social mores of upper crust aristocratic British people are so different from sort of ordinary Britons at this point that they cannot fathom, mm-hmm. you know, what would possess somebody to do this or why they would reveal this much about themselves. <laughs> but then really the last straw that leads them to proposing divorce is a woman named Tiggy. I feel like this is a name 
in a dream that I woke up from like a nap and I'm like, Tiggy. <laughs> Who is Tiggy? Tiggy is the nanny to <laughs> William and Harry. Oh, of course. Classic. Go for the nanny. So as soon as she leaves the family, Charles casts around and finds basically like an alternate universe version of Diana. She's, you know, she's upper crust. Her family's connected to the royal family. Kind of like the way that Diana was in her early 20s. It's like, yeah, go like be a nanny for some rich family, whatever, until you get married. Whatever, Tiggy. Who cares what you do? So... She starts taking care of William and Harry and sort of being the person at Highgrove that takes care of them when Charles is off, like, doing his (laughs) eco-fascism. And so there start Mm. to be photos in the paper of, you know, here's William and Harry riding horses and there's Tiggy on a horse next to them. She just starts kind of showing up visually around these kids and Diana fucking hates her. Oh, yeah. It's a stepmom type situation. Yes. Yeah. So she becomes convinced, and there's no evidence of this. That her and Charles are having an affair. Poor Tiggy. She asks her private secretary to write a letter, like a formal request to Prince Charles's kind of team, saying that she wants clarity on what exactly Tiggy's rules are, and she <laughs> wants to have approval over anything that Tiggy is doing with the kids. Mm. It's like a weird move. Mm. And then in late 1995, rumors start going around that Tiggy had gotten pregnant with Charles's baby and had an abortion. Hmm. There's a Christmas party that Diana is invited to where Tiggy is also attending. And she walks up to Tiggy and she says, Tiggy, good to see you. So sorry to hear about the baby. <gasps> oh boy, that is a spit covered curveball if ever I heard one. Bad. Yeah. Right below the belt. So Tiggy bursts into tears immediately and just storms out of the party. Yeah. And, like, nobody has talked to her about it. She's vaguely aware of these rumors. They're not fucking true as well. Oh, wow. Okay. Well, that's, like, it could... So if it were true, it would have been worse because that would have been really hurtful as opposed to just really rude and silly. You know, everybody else, of course, sees us at the party. Rumors go around these upper crust Maury Povich societies and people are just like... Why would Diana do this? Like, that's, this is like pretty unhinged behavior. Like, because she has issues, you guys. So Tiggy, because her family's sort of intertwined, she goes to the queen. (laughs) They talk about like maybe filing a libel suit, whatever. They find out later that Diana is the one who started the rumor. Oh, nice. Wow. That is some real mean girls material right there. I know. It's some like hot mess shit. It's Yeah, it is. Yeah, she's a hot mess express. And so... Between Charles admitting that he's had the affair with Camilla and the quote-unquote unhinged panorama interview and the pretty legit unhinged stuff with Tiggy, the queen is basically just like, fuck this, let's get this woman out of our lives, that's it. Hmm. This is sort of nuts again, like this is weird in-law behavior. So on December 20th, 1995, Princess Diana gets an official letter from the queen saying we think you should divorce our son. Wow, great. Yeah. So it's like she finally got everyone on board by just being a nightmare. Yes, exactly. Sometimes that <laughs> works. Sometimes that's what is fastest. And so <laughs> thus commences this sort of six, seven, eight month long negotiation about what the divorce is going to actually entail. Ugh. The main things that they're arguing over in the divorce is, of course, how much money, how, how big is the settlement? going to be that diana gets from the royal family 
sort of living arrangements, like can she continue to live at Kensington Palace, can she not, etc., what custody is going to be, and then the thorniest, weirdest issue, can she continue to use the title Her Royal Highness? Mm. This is something that is like a huge piece of the negotiations. Wow. Does she care? Is she invested in it? Well, this is what's amazing, is that the things that people care about are completely mismatched, which is actually great. So the queen is basically just like, yeah, give her whatever money she needs. Obviously, they're going to have joint custody. Like, we're not going to take the kids away. That would be bananas. And, uh, you know, like, yeah, she can stay in Kensington Palace. Like, I never go to Kensington Palace. A bunch of fucking weirdos live there anyway. I, like, I don't care. Let Like, give her all the things. But... She must not retain the title of Her Royal Highness. And then mm-hmm. Princess Diana is like, look, I want the money. I want to stay in the house. I want the kids. And like, pfft, if I have to give up the title, then whatever. I don't give a shit about this fucking title. Right. Great. <laughs> I know. She does also insist that she retains the privileges to use the Buckingham Palace gym, which I think is a really weird flex, but fine. <laughs> does she get to keep using it? <laughs> no, that's actually one of the things she loses in the divorce. Oh, well. Yeah. yeah. So at the end of this divorce, there's like months of negotiations and like she puts up press releases and they put out press releases and it's like kind of weird and ugly. She gets 17 million pound payout and 400,000 pounds a year for like her office. So they're going to continue to pay her staff and like the rent in the building, whatever, whatever. Cool. She gets to stay in Kensington Palace, but then they insist that she can no longer be her royal highness. She is now Diana, comma, princess of Wales. Well, that's the same thing, basically. I know. <laughs> this, is, this is basically what Diana says, like, yeah, this is all fake. Right. Like, tell me about the real money that you're putting in my bank account. <laughs> Say more about that part. Who fucking cares? It's nice that she doesn't care very much or at all. So on July 15th, 1996, the papers are filed and they divorce. It is almost exactly a year and six weeks until she dies. Wow. So she got a year. Yeah. So we're really we're really in like the countdown phase now. Ooh. All right. Last photo. Okay. Are you emailing it to me? Yes. Okay. So this is an image of Princess Diana that connects with really my only memories of her from the mid 90s. Yeah. And I remember her doing a lot of landmine cherry yep. stuff. And this appears to be her doing, yeah, that because there's mm-hmm. signs all over with a skull and crossbones saying danger mines. Yes. And she's wearing a some kind of protective vest that says the halo trust mm-hmm. on it, you know, with this kind of like mid-career Rachel Weiss kind of a, an expression on her face. Yeah. This is actually part of the sort of her being manipulative thing because this event, this is her. She's been doing landmines, anti-landmines charity work for a while. And she goes down to Angola to do this sort of walk through a heavily mined area. And something went wrong with the photographer's camera, like lenses, heat, humidity, something, something. And so because he didn't get the shots, she has to do it again. And so, of course, this is seen as like, oh, it's fake. It's just a photo op and she's manipulating the media. And it's like, yes, <laughs> like she's not actually clearing uh, the land of mines. Yeah. And it's based on the idea that like people don't understand that there are different kinds of charitable work, which I think yes. people basically do. It seems she got interested in landmines activism after seeing a documentary. She's such a millennial. I mean, this is like the last phase of her life, the sort of post-divorce Princess Diana, which is really the only glimpse that we have of what her life would have been like if she lived. Yeah, or what she was starting to grow toward. Yeah. yeah. She forms an alliance with Tony Blair, who is now mm. the prime minister, mm. and he's really the only person to see 
the potential of this person, like huh. for bringing attention to issues. Huh. And she's very good at that aspect of the job. And so he makes her a humanitarian ambassador. Mm-hmm. Even John Major was like, why would I want her going on like official trips? I don't see why we would have her, you know, meeting with whatever the prime minister of Kazakhstan, whereas Tony Blair understands like, no, it's all fake. Like diplomacy is all a facade, right? It's like, how Mm. good do people get along with each other? Right. So all these other male politicians are like, how could we have this woman who only knows hollow pageantry play a decisive (laughs) role in our hollow pageantry? And it's like, I got news for you, fuckos. It's all bullshit. Right. So like, you should have this bullshit ass woman on your team. Yeah. She starts doing all this landmine stuff. She goes to Bosnia. She goes to Angola. This becomes like one of her main issues. Hmm. And why do they have landmines to begin with? Like to give us a little landmine crash course. It's basically in like civil wars. Hmm. They'll put a shitload of man- landmines down. And then even after the war ends, those landmines just stay there. And so oftentimes, you know, children walking to school will lose an arm or will be killed or will be horribly maimed. Like, it's an issue that is good for celebrities because it primarily affects, like, women and children, like, people who are doing a lot of walking in the countryside. And unlike some trendy issues today for celebrities, it is something that demonstrably exists. And it's very easy to grasp the concept that, like, this is bad. This is a bad scene. And also, all accounts are that this is very effective. So the international campaign to ban landmines wins the Nobel Prize. Oh. And they thank Diana in their acceptance speech. And you don't want to give Diana too much credit because obviously like the sort of the low level grunt, very difficult work of campaigning and research, Mm -hmm. like years of work go into things before celebrities find out about them, before they're sort of ready for the celebrity inputs. But also once she gets involved and once this is seen as sort of like an international issue of importance, Britain bans the export Mm. of landmines and all these other countries sign treaties against landmines. So that's basically one aspect of her post-divorce life. Another Mm. aspect, this is like hard to talk about. This like really, really, really stuck out to me as – kind of like a hot mess express aspect of Diana's life. Mm -hmm. So what happens at this time is she also becomes increasingly isolated. Mm -hmm. At the time of her death, all of her friends are people who she's only known for a few years. One by one, all of her friends from childhood, she cuts out. Hmm. So this woman, Carolyn Bartholomew, who was the one who sort of gave her the ultimatum, like, you have to do something about your eating disorder or else I'm going to go to the press. Like, Mm -hmm. they stop talking because... She's mad at Carolyn for talking to Andrew Morton for his book. Hmm. She also has a falling out with Fergie. Wow. Because Fergie publishes a memoir about her experience with the royal family. And in it, she mentions that Diana had once offered to loan her a pair of shoes. And she says in the book, oh, I didn't want to wear Diana's shoes because she has foot warts. And I didn't want to get foot warts. I I don't know how much to believe this particular theory. Like, it it might have been something else in the book. But we do know that they were not speaking at the time of Diana's death and hadn't spoken in years. Yeah. I should not have been doing this, but I was reading message boards on the royal family because I was trying to unravel what happened between her and Carolyn Bartholomew. And I was never really able to get Mm. a good answer. Mm. I found these sort of, you know message boards of people who've like really gone down rabbit holes on this shit and what one person said there is just that like she didn't really have conflict resolution skills yeah that basically as soon as somebody would bring something up like one of her friends brought up that hey you know prince william has mentioned to me that it's a little embarrassing that you drop him off at eton and like you're the only mom that drops off their kids and it's embarrassing to him 
And I don't know, it's, it's, it's a hurtful thing for her to hear about her son. It's a hurtful thing for her to hear from her friend. But instead of in any way expressing that, she just stops talking to him and they never speak again. Yeah. I, I think you see this pattern so often with people, especially people really struggling with severe mental illness. Mm. It's like they need people, they need perspective, they need love so bad, but yet they're pushing people away from them. Like the, the exact thing that they need, mm-hmm. they're not able to receive. I mean, I think unfortunately, like, Trauma in relationships often teaches us to rely on black and white thinking, which then makes it harder for us to cultivate good relationships. You know, it's like you know what you need, but you're not willing to do the thing that would get it to you. Or you're not able to because like it feels too bad to be held accountable. Yeah. And you associate that feeling with being attacked or something like there's so many reasons to just like cut out the relationships that involve someone expecting accountability from you. One of the reasons why she dives so deeply into these relationships with men is that she has this idea that it's sort of like, you know, once I meet a man, everything will be better, right? Mm -hmm. Instead of trying to form intimate relationships with people that she can really trust that aren't being paid by the tabloids to sell her out, she ends up thinking that like, oh, what I really need is a man. Yeah. And so the last thing that happens before we get to our tragic fifth episode Mm -hmm. is she meets one more guy. She has one more love of her life. Mm -hmm. His name is Hasnat Khan. Have you ever heard of this guy? No. He is a surgeon in London and she meets him in 1995 when a friend of hers is undergoing surgery and she visits this friend and Hasnat Khan is the doctor. Mm -hmm. So apparently one of the things that really gets her fixated on him is he like doesn't give a shit about her at all. They're like, meet the Princess of Wales. And he's like, yeah, yeah. Anyway, next Tuesday, you need to take these medications. <laughs> like, he's not impressed by her at all. So this friend of hers is in the hospital for 18 days, and Diana just starts coming every day and chatting to the doctor. Of course. They date for two years. Oh, wow. There's just something interesting to me about Hasnat Khan, who's like a very important guy in her life, but there's literally no photos of them together. That's impressive. It's also striking in that it's really the only sense of normalcy that she gets like you can see why she likes this guy that he's he's a junior surgeon he's pretty close to her age he's really into his job he's working like 80 90 hour weeks and you know they start doing normal stuff together she'll come over to his you know he lives in like a really modest one bedroom apartment and she'll come over when he's not there and like clean and do his dishes (laughs) she says at one point they go to a pub and she's like let me order i've never ordered drinks before and he like has to tell her how to do it this really is like roman (laughs) holiday at one point she goes and watches him perform surgery which is like a cute girlfriend thing to do totally she starts wearing he's from pakistan and she starts wearing like traditional pakistani clothes when they hang out that's really cool another thing that's really interesting about him he's never said a word about their relationship to the press to this day Hmm. he's just not interested like the guy seems very thoroughly not interested in being in the press in fame on any level can you see why dating princess diana for two years would perhaps put you off of that whole concept even more shit yeah but then in the same way that you know all of her relationships have this just like fundamentally doomed 
quality. Mm-hmm. Eventually, journalists sniff out that they're dating, and there's a story in the Sunday Mirror about mm-hmm. him and about them, and he doesn't speak to her for three weeks. Oh, shit. Wow. As soon as that story comes out, he starts getting, like, racist death threats in the mail. Mm. Another thing of, like, the doomedness of this is that she is envisioning this life for them where they're sort of both like globe trotters where she's doing her landmine stuff and he is going to be sort of a partner with her and he's going to go around and like raise awareness of like medical issues and when she talks about like this life that she's envisioning for them he's like no i don't want to raise awareness of surgery i want to do surgery mm-hmm. and this is also kind of fascinating his parents will not allow him to marry a non-muslim mm. at one point his dad gives an interview to the press and he says he's not going to marry her. We're looking for a bride for him. She must belong to a respectable family. She should be rich, belonging to the upper middle class, preferably to our relations or tribe. But if we do not find her in our own tribe, we can try outside it. But preferably, she should be at least a Pakistani Muslim girl. Oh, this sounds familiar. And so in May of 1997, this is three months before she dies, she goes to Pakistan without telling him and goes to try a charm offensive on his parents. Hmm. So she goes and hangs out with them. And they're like, no, you don't get it. Like, we like you. It has nothing to do with the fact that we don't like you. But it's just like, this is the future that we have envisioned for our son. And he gets really pissed off at her because like, are you fucking serious? You're going to go work on my parents? Mm -hmm. And so in, you know, sort of May, June, the relationship is kind of breaking down. Like they've just reached the limit of what they can do within the relationship that they have. And in July, she tells him, just so you know, you know, I wanted to do some stuff with my kids this summer. I was going to try to take them to the Hamptons, but like the security arrangements weren't high enough. So for our summer vacation, we're going to spend a week or two on the yacht of this guy, Mohammed Al-Fayed, who owns Harrods, the department store. Mm. So when she's gone, he sees a tabloid with her on the cover cuddling with this guy, Dodi Al-Fayed, the son of the guy who owns Harrods. And Mm. so she comes back and he breaks up with her. He's like, you're being kind of chicken shit. You clearly don't want to be in this relationship anymore. And instead of telling me, you're just cheating on me with this other guy. Well, I mean, also like behaving indefensibly is a great way to just force someone to break up with you without having to assertively break up with them yourself. So So they break up sometime in late July. And at the end of August, she dies in the car crash. Mm. And so that's where we're going to leave it. Next episode, we're going to meet Dodie. We're going to talk about Paris. We're going to talk about the conspiracy theories. We're going to talk about how the royal family reacts to her death. Okay. I'm ready for the final chapter. I don't think this is going to turn out well for anybody. We have a little ending. I want to do another table read. Oh, okay. You into this? Oh, yeah. I want to end thinking about something other than, you know, just being freshly broken up with and about to die. So, yeah. This is an excerpt from the Martin Bashir interview. Mm -hmm. So I'm going to play Martin and you're going to play Diana. Okay. What role do you see for yourself in the future? I'd like to be an ambassador for this country. I'd like to represent this country abroad. As I have all this media interest, let's not just sit in this country and be battered by it. Let's take them, these people, out to represent this country and the good qualities of it abroad. When I go abroad, we've got 60 to 90 photographers just from this country coming with me. 
So let's use it in a productive way to help this country. You say you feel your future is as some form of ambassador. At whose behest is that? On what grounds do you feel you have the right to think of yourself as an ambassador? I've been in a privileged position for 15 years. I've got tremendous knowledge about people and how to communicate. I've learned that, I've got it, and I want to use it. And when I look at people in public life, I'm not a political animal, but I think the biggest disease this world suffers from in this day and age is a disease of people feeling unloved. And I know that I can give love for a minute, for half an hour, for a day, for a month, but I can give. I'm very happy to do that, and I want to do that. Do you think the British people are happy with you and your role? I think the British people need someone in public life to give affection, to make them feel important, to support them, to give them light in their dark tunnels. I see it as a possibly unique role, and yes, I've had difficulties, as everybody has witnessed over the years. But let's now use the knowledge I've gathered to help other people in distress. Do you think you can? I know I can. I know I can. Yes. And that's that's the Diana I want to leave us with. Me too. You know? She's trying. She's a mess, but she's trying. She's a big mess with a good heart. Yeah. I just love that. that yeah. People need to feel affection. All I can do is make people feel loved. Hmm. That's always been her at her strongest. Hmm. She was in a system that refused to acknowledge the truth of that, that everybody needs to feel loved. Mm -hmm. And people kept telling her that it didn't matter that she was good at that. And Mm. it did matter. And now we know it mattered because she isn't around to do it anymore. And Mm -hmm. we can tell. So I think that this is what she would have done if she had lived. I think she would be sort of a international ambassador for making people feel loved and talking about the things that she had been through. Yeah. And I think that she would have great Instagram stories today <laughs> if she were still around. So I know that that might seem frivolous to be like, I wish I could see what her Instagram stories would have been like. But like, I really do. And I think they would make us feel less alone in this difficult world. Yeah. And I guess, you know, one of the hangups people have is accepting that Something as frivolous as Instagram stories can do that, but they do. We yeah. can't turn our back on on emotional sustenance, even if we find it in a place that seems to be embarrassing somehow. And that's also the one thing that I don't know if she ever got in her life is emotional sustenance. Yeah. Okay. So I have a, I have a, a moral from this. Ooh. If you'd like one. Do it. Okay. Everybody, survive. Because you have to keep living to eventually have a relationship that's worthy of you. Fuck, Sarah, now I'm chopping onions over here. Huh? (laughs) 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 I was worried that didn't make sense. (laughs) Live! Live! Live!